if you are a business owner and you get 100% of your new customers from one place, that's a tough place to be. So regardless of the size or scale of your organization, if your only way of acquiring new customers is from putting money into the Facebook ads machine and expecting it to come back at a certain return, that's a risky business proposition. Welcome to the Ford Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Hey guys, just got done recording uh, with Kelsey and we had a really cool conversation. Kelsey is the co-founder of 365 Holdings, and that is a hold co that manages nine different e-commerce businesses. And so we start and talk a lot about what that structure is like and how he has managed to do that with some shared services. We talk about two businesses in particular that they have, a natural cloth diaper business and an emergency food prepping business. Uh, We go into how he structures e-commerce acquisitions, especially how he might be thinking about structuring future acquisitions in this down market. We talk about how Amazon is a necessary evil um, if you're going to play in the e-commerce space. And then we talk about a conference that he throws and will be throwing for the second time called Holdco Comp and just what it's like to throw an event and what he's learned from putting on these kind of niche community events that are becoming more popular. We cover a lot. Kelsey's great. I think you'll enjoy this as much as I did. So thanks for continuing to join me and enjoy the show. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Cosseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 cost seg studies and have saved their clients more than 65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your cost seg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part, their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. Hey guys, if you're not following Fort Capital on LinkedIn, I would. In a prior ad, I talked about our newsletter, but LinkedIn is just as good, except these are in real time. We post weekly, sometimes daily. We talk about career opportunities, information on our latest acquisitions and dispositions, updates across the Fort team, our latest real estate-focused podcast episodes, our most recent content pieces. Stay up to date with the number one fastest growing private real estate company in Texas by following Fort Capital on LinkedIn. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Chris, thanks for having me. I think it's cool that the internet brought us together. You're from Akron, Ohio, but we've had a chance. We spent a good chunk of time given the distance over the last couple of years and consider you a good friend now. So thanks for coming down to Fort Worth. Thanks for having me back for a second visit. Sorry, the first one didn't work out. 
Yeah, Kelsey lost his voice. And so he flew into town and we ended up getting to hang out for an afternoon instead, which was fun. But it was just a ruse to spend more time with you. So thanks for <laughs> it. It worked. It worked. Uh, as a good excuse. Let's just kind of start with just a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into 365 Holdings and a little bit about you. Six years ago, my business partner and I bought our first e-commerce business. We had a couple of small like offline service businesses. We managed to sell one for $100,000. We used an SBA loan and a seller note and bought an e-commerce company. Having no experience or knowledge, we just thought we got a, a good deal on the business. And if everything went poorly, we thought we could run it if the team up and left. So that was our first foray into e-commerce. About 90 days later, we maxed the line of credit and drained the checking account and bought the second one. And that was the beginning of, of 365 Holdings. So today, that is a group of nine brands in a portfolio. Run on a shared services model in Northeast Ohio, where we do everything from some manufacturing to pick back and ship, customer service, content creation, design, marketing. And for all those brands, we just run them on a, a roll-up, uh, vertically integrated shared services team that is doing all the things those businesses need under one roof. So shared services, kind of like the the chicken, the easy to do stuff that I wouldn't say easy to do, but the same vanilla stuff that happens in each business. What does shared services mean to you? So if you're in marketing and you are really good at writing email marketing, you're going to do email marketing across all those businesses. Okay. If you're in customer service, you're going to work on two or three businesses that you know well. If you're in the warehouse, you can pick pack any item because they're all on the same barcodes and same shipping system. Essentially, instead of us paying profit to outside agencies or vendors for a lot of functions that many e-commerce native businesses would outsource, yeah. we've built it all on an in-house team. The things that are more high leverage, head of HR, head of finance, head of supply chain, we can fractionalize those services internally, where some of the businesses that we own would never have a leader that's a supply chain leader. They just wouldn't have that person. The founder or owner operator would drive product. And now we have a team that can help assist with those things. And one thing I thought was interesting and confirm that I'm right here, but you do all that under one roof. Like physically, yeah. So there's uh, an office and then in the complex we're in uh, attached adjacent to it is our uh, warehouse and production facility. Okay. So all nine businesses live under one roof. Correct. There's a few exceptions here and there. So we have a couple contractors around the globe. We have a captive production facility that's overseas for one of the businesses, but for all intents and purposes, it's 90% in Akron. Okay. I want to jump back just a second. Yep. How did you guys get this first deal? Where were you at in life that an e-commerce business came across? How did you meet Justin yep. and, and how did you guys get a deal? I, I didn't know what the term was at the time. I think today we'd be classified as like a, a self-funded searcher. We were guys looking to buy a business. That's okay. a, a ETA and, and search funds is this like very popular thing today in the world. I just thought it was, hey, I want to buy a business. Okay. And so I was on business brokers email lists and looking at offering memorandums and trying to find a company to buy. Okay. When you... I'm going to challenge you a little bit when you, and this is because I, when I think of nine businesses under one roof, the way my brain works, when you wake up every day and you walk into the office, what are you doing? Are you running each business each day or are you sitting at a higher level? How do you think about your role in the organization? So I've got the role of CEO and we use a system called EOS to run the business. I'm the visionary. Justin's the COO, the president, the EOS uh, integrator. So he really runs the day-to-day. -day. The leadership team reports to him. We have a couple of brand general managers that also report to him. I'm worried about the direction of the company. Where are we going in the future? What is a good growth prospect? What should we be doing from financing or M&A? I'm the person trying to think a few steps ahead of the future of the business. 
and managing any external relationships. So my weeks can vary pretty widely. I've got like one and a half direct reports, and I'm really worried about where we're headed, where Justin's worried about getting this month's P&L out at a profit. Okay, so where we're headed. What's going on just in e-commerce in general right now? It's getting tough. The post-COVID bump of e-commerce was pretty real, and a lot of people rode that wave to, to new heights. And with changes in supply chain and inflation and interest rates, it's definitely more challenging. We've seen a lot of consolidation. Prices on a lot of transactions have come down. Sources of capital have dried up, or those sources of capital have gotten a lot more expensive. Ad tech and big tech, so I think of Facebook, Google, and Amazon as like the uh, marriage you never wanted to be in, but you kind of have to be for e-commerce, consistently put pressure on lots of small businesses. But if you're in e-commerce, it's exponentially so because they're your source of new customers and traffic in a lot of ways. So I think a lot about those external risks on the business and how we can build higher quality businesses that can survive despite the changes that big tech might make. Yeah, I had Andy done few episodes on and he he said something you know i think when e-commerce first started you mentioned like the big three the cost of working with them was pretty low and then yep. over time they kept raising the costs and he just said you'll see a lot of e-commerce businesses now maybe going back to brick and mortar because it turns out rent is actually cheaper yeah. than the toll you pay on the internet the, the joke was uh cac is the new rent so yeah, yeah, CAC yeah being an acquisition cost from facebook he wrote a seminal piece that i think a lot of e-commerce people have read about e-commerce growth and the frustrations about enterprise value and earnings. And yeah, it, it, nobody knows better than him. He's, he's one of the OGs. What happened in your experience when Facebook came out? I guess it's probably been over a year now yeah. when Apple basically said, no mas, yep. we're going to change the algorithm and Facebook can't that do was, what it could do before. It was not as big of an impact on our business as a lot of people assume it would be. If you are a business owner, and you get 100% of your new customers from one place, that's a tough place to be. So regardless of the size or scale of your organization, if your only way of acquiring new customers is from putting money into the Facebook ads machine and expecting it to come back at a certain return, that's a risky business proposition. Most of our businesses do run Facebook ads, but we also have a lot of other traffic channels, whether that's Google, email, affiliate, SEO, search, Amazon. So we felt an impact, but it wasn't a dramatic one. And a lot of the better operators in the space, I think ourselves included, have now kind of navigated this post iOS change and advertising is maybe a little bit harder, a little harder to measure, but it was only a speed bump for us. That leads me to the question, what are the best ways to market online today? Like where do y'all get the most traction? There's only, in my view, three ways to bring in revenue if you're a consumer products company on the internet. Either you have brand awareness, so Chris, recommends you. And so I literally type in the name of the company and I, I just go right to them. Or a consumer can either enter a commercial transaction through demand capture or demand creation. So demand capture is I go looking for something. I type it into Google. I type it into Amazon. That's probably the easiest to do because you just bid on it and you show up and people go looking for the thing you sell. The harder one is demand creation. That's creating a story, talking about the problems people have and presenting them a solution. Usually that's Facebook ads, YouTube ads, things like that. And so there's really only your three options. If nobody knows you yet, you either have to create demand or capture it. And if they do know you, you can use the revenue that you get from that low cost traffic to reinvest in capturing or creating more demand. But it's really just a game of balancing how much you're spending to capture demand, create demand, and how much you get just for showing up every day. Okay. So on that demand, you said there was a nice bump throughout COVID. Yep. 
what caused that bump to kind of come back down? Was it just natural market forces? People got busy again. They weren't just shopping all day. Or was there something else kind of happening that maybe structurally shifted how demand works in e-commerce? I think that it was just a bump on the long-term trend line. There's some good data St. Louis Fed puts out. You can see this chart. It was just a bump of people literally couldn't leave their house to go to the store. Certainly the stimulus checks and extra cash in the system made it easy to finance things. There's probably a bubble in consumer credit right now. You've probably been on websites and you see like the four easy payments button. Uh, a lot of those vendors really, really got big throughout COVID. And consumers were certainly stretching their wallet to buy discretionary things, home fitness equipment, food, whatever it might be. And all of that took the growth of e-commerce above the trend line. And now it's since come back to on trend. Okay. When you're buying a business, are you thinking of it from we're looking for a good opportunity or are you looking at, hey, here's a category we want to be in that we've researched that we like and let's go find a business in that category? Historically, we've been super opportunistic, just finding businesses we thought we could operate well, that would be profitable and have uh, some defensibility or moat in the business that we thought would be a staying power for it to be a good investment. Okay. So expand a little bit more. What would you say is your edge? So today, some of the best businesses we have is where we have in-house supply chain or manufacturing function, where no matter how smart Chris Powers is or how much resources he has, it'd be really hard to go spin up a competitor because you couldn't just go to a factory in China and say, hey, I'd like to order you know, carton of these and I'm going to go put them on Amazon and compete with Kelsey. So supply chain defensibility, in-house manufacturing and verticalizing the businesses is probably the best defensibility in e-commerce today because the barriers to entry on the commodity products are just so low. And like what you said, some of these businesses, if they're standalone on their own, wouldn't have the resources to work on them that they do because you have a shared service function across nine businesses. So you're able to provide resources to some of these businesses that is a standalone, just they couldn't afford. Correct. Okay. Let's talk about, I had two businesses picked out. Y'all have gone like super niche. So you buy niche businesses. Yep. Let's talk about the business of cloth diapers. This is, this is your favorite. I know. So I, yeah. <laughs> I talked about this with Bill DA, but how did that deal come to be? Maybe again, it was just an opportunity, but I kind of want to yep. pick around and talk about how this business works and what you've learned from it. So I'm going to zoom back a little bit and talk about the transition from the beginning of this conversation when I said, hey, we bought an e-commerce business, no real thesis. And then 90 days later, we took all of our money and, and bought a second one. Somewhere around that time, I started to go deep to figure out, was there a business model here? And the business model we then embarked on, I think we've largely accomplished today, is this notion that after World War II, the American consumer spending trend started. There was really no idea that consumers had discretionary funding to go spend money on things really prior to World War II. It's a post-US dominant financial system phenomenon that we all have discretionary money and buy things from brands. This is like a relatively new thing in the history of the world. Really? People have been buying houses for a long time and buildings and cars, but the notion that we spend money on branded products is a new phenomenon. So if you look at the history, it starts with Big companies advertise on ABC and NBC and radio. Maybe they bought billboards and they went through big box stores like Sears back in the day and eventually Walmart. And that was the beginning of American consumer spending. The internet comes along and it changes the future from being a small number of big brands to a big number of very, very small brands. Mm. So I can go on Facebook, I can go on Google, I can go on Amazon, and I can now find these long tail niche brands that would never be on the shelf stores of K Kmart or Walmart or Costco. 
And so it unlocks this long tail of demand where you asked about cloth diapers. If you go to many big box stores, you might find maybe one or two cloth diaper products from maybe Gerber, the Gerber branded. You're not going to find the dozens of online niche branded cloth diaper brands that we might sell at Nikki's Diapers. Our emergency food business is one of our like better this. assets. Yeah, we're, 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 there's a coupon code. Uh, if you put uh, Chris Powers 10 at checkout, you can get a discount on some emergency food. Okay. Yeah, because Chris is such a fan. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's a product that doesn't have enough demand at retail to for us to have a viable business model. Some competitors have a, a little bit of retail distribution, but it's largely an online category. Most people shopping for that product are going to order it over the internet and have it shipped to their home. It's not going to show up on the shelves of Sam's Club or Costco. You and I, that was like one of the first businesses we talked about. And I was blown away how many people are out there buying food for prepping. The average customer in that business is not a hardcore prepper. It's an average middle American family with a couple kids and a spouse, a husband or the wife, either way, that's just concerned about the world in the future and sleeps better at night knowing they've got a couple buckets of food in the basement. We did a whole campaign called Food Insurance. Just helps you sleep at night. You're going to feel better. Do people that, do they buy once, stick it in their closet and then they're done? Or do they kind of like every time a, a scary media story comes out, they might go add another bucket to the collection? This is the best counter-cyclical business you could ever dream of. I don't want bad things to happen in the world, but when the news headlines get scary, the revenue in that business generally does well. It's like every time they come out and say they're going to try and ban guns, gun sales go through the roof. Yep. It, it actually is. It's the marketing campaign for Anything political or, or news cycle fear-driven will cause an immediate reaction in the revenue in that business. Real quick, you said something interesting and I don't, maybe you have the answer to this, maybe you don't. What caused the American economy and American consumers to start buying from brands after World War II? Was it something that the government kind of pushed or what was like an inflection point it, there? It was just the dominance of U.S. as the world's reserve currency. There was physically very little buildings, equipment, factories left in mainland Europe. America had just stocked up to build the U.S. war machine. Now we have factories and we had an economy. We had the world's reserve currency and we had humans that were coming home and ready to work because they were done fighting on foreign shores. And that's the boom of when we see consumer brands really take off in America and then in the world broadly. So the internet was the only thing at that point. Stopping a small brand from getting big. So big companies, Procter & Gamble, SC Johnson, all, all these companies and the brands that they own date back to the early part of the last century. And they really established dominance throughout 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, then the internet comes along, changes distribution. I can now reach Chris Powers with my vegan peanut butter dog treat that nobody ever would, <laughs> would put on a shelf at a store, right? But like, you love that for your dog and you got to go buy it. And I find you on the internet with a great ad that talks about how this dog, you know, loves these treats and you decide to buy it. That just wasn't possible in a big box retail format. Okay. So back to the cloth diapers online. How do you find people that want to buy a cloth diaper? I've never seen an ad for one. I didn't even know they existed so until we talked about them. We're back to the, the three ways you can you can sell things on the internet. Either you have brand awareness and people know about it, or you go searching for it and I appear, or I target you through advertising because I think that you're a good prospect. So we own Nikki's diapers. And if you said, hey, Kelsey, where should I buy my cloth diapers from? I would obviously say, hey, Chris, like Nikki's diapers is the place. So you type that in. We're now capturing you through, through brand. If you don't know me and you just type it into Google, we're probably going to show up at the top of that page, either through organic or paid to capture your sale. Or if you're a young mom that is in market in Facebook's algorithm, we might show you an ad that says, hey, 
You're interested in sustainability. Are you worried about what diapers are doing in the landfill? Are you worried about your child's sensitivity in their skin? Maybe you should consider switching to cloth and save some money. I'm either going to have brand awareness, capture you when you search, or interrupt you and try to create demand as you're browsing. Those are the only three ways we can generate revenue in e-commerce, and we do all three. Do you sell anything besides the diaper? Everything that goes with it. What goes with it? Stuff you don't even ima- want to imagine. Uh, well, let's talk about a few. Like what I, since I'm so clueless on this, I'd imagine there's like some detergent maybe that's so, good for cleaning so kid poop. So there's usually an inner and an outer. The outer is waterproof. The inner is absorbent. You might change the inners more frequently than the outers. This would go into a pale liner, which is like a stink-proof bag that you're going to put all the dirty diapers in. And then there's many, many adjacent accessories. Can you buy branded cloth diapers with designs on them? Or could you get like a... You know, if your kid loves baseball, you get... There's a whole series of prints and patterns, colors, seasonal themes. It it gets pretty crazy. How many competitors are out there in that space? Not many. That market has been consolidating for sure. And the brand that we own operates one of the bigger players in the space. Okay. And then on going back to the prepping business, I'm assuming there's lines of food that you can sell. Are there other things that I'm not thinking about that you can sell through? Oh yeah. Water storage. So if you want to catch some rainwater and store that, that's a very popular prepper activity. Some equipment, like generators or even home freeze dryers, we're a retailer for some of those. Food is by far the bulk of that business though. But on like a generator, you're not manufacturing the generator. You're just a conduit to the generator. If if it's the equipment, like that business is at its core a food business, but we know that that customer has other needs. And so we're going to build some ancillary product lines around food, such as water storage, generators, freeze dryers. You had a quote, I think on Twitter, you said the best business we have bought to date, we paid the least for, Mm -hmm. and the worst business we bought to date, we paid the most for. Is that luck or is there an insight there? I don't know about the financial models you've done over the years, but all of mine go up and to the right. Um, (laughs) I've never seen one that does it. Yeah, it's crazy. For all the best intentions, I feel like every time we do a transaction, we learn something and we get a better filter and lens of how to think about future deals. And so, yeah, every business we've ever bought has been with a business plan predicated on continued growth and success. And sometimes those don't always pan out. Yeah. We've just seen a, a dispersion in outcomes. Is, some, is there something you've learned just on structuring a deal or is it really deal by deal or are there things that you've learned from deal one to now like this is the way you structure an e-commerce acquisition? I think that the thesis that I have now for consumer brands and the things that we understand about what really drives revenue and value are things I didn't understand a single thing about when we got started. It's all been self-taught through having operational experience. And our lens has gotten much sharper at how we evaluate deals now. There's things that cross my desk today that I laugh at and delete quickly that a couple of years ago, I might have put an offer in on. So it's been the entrepreneurial learning of going through operating those brands. Amazon. Mm -hmm. Do you love them? Do you hate them? Are they just another... Necessary evil. Necessary evil. What does that mean? Many people, myself included, maybe you, I've seen my wife do this. You'll see an ad and you'll just instinctively open Amazon and go to order it there because... It's free prime two-day shipping and it's easy and it's fast and your card's saved. That is a really, really competitive moat that they've built there. And so I used to be very precious about this and say, oh, like, we don't want to give up our customer to Amazon. It's their customer and they're going to take all this margin out of our P&L. And now I'm of the mindset of we just want to be everywhere. If you're going to f- see my ad and go to my website and order direct, I'd love that. If you're going to see my ad and decide to open the Amazon app, I don't want to not be there because the chances of you buying anyways from a competitor are pretty high. 
I might as well go ahead and capture that sale. So for better or worse, we're on Amazon. Do you make money on Amazon sales or is it like a f you basically don't lose money, you don't really make money, but it's almost like a marketing channel? We're definitely profitable on Amazon for all of our businesses. The P&L breaks down a bit differently because you have just different cost drivers. You end up with a bigger share of costs going out to Amazon and their platform fees that you don't have on the D2C side, but you make up for it with a little bit lower burden on things like customer service and shipping. Is Amazon, is the momentum with Amazon that you feel like they're helping small businesses or is the mm. is it that they're continuing to little by little take away? So back to brand demand capture and demand creation, Amazon is really a demand capture platform. It's spring in Northeast Ohio. I bring the grill out. The brush is, you know, not in good shape. I type in grill brush. I buy the first $10 grill brush I see. There's no brand loyalty there. I didn't get an ad for it. I went looking for it. It was the lowest cost, easiest way to find a grill brush. And so if you're selling a commodity product, it is definitely the place where there's the most transaction volume. And if you're a good operator, you can build a profitable business on Amazon selling commodity products. If you're differentiated or you want to create demand, you really can't do that on the Amazon platform very well. You're going to use Facebook ads and a D2C website to sell those kind of products. Okay. So if we go back to the cloth diapers, yep. is that a commodity product? Depends on who you are as a buyer. So we have buyers in our business that would look for us as a commodity and would prefer the low cost channel of Amazon as an easy way to get the product. We have other customers that might be the enthusiasts. You mentioned the prints and patterns where they're going to go to the D2C site and they want the new thing the day it comes out in a certain color and certain size shipped right from manufacturer, not from Amazon. So depends on who you are as a customer. Is your goal with these nine businesses to, how do I say this? Let's just say all nine of them just started taking off and growing like crazy. That'd be great. That would be great. That would, that would be like these nine rocket ships. I have to imagine law of averages and numbers. There might be one or two that emerge as kind of the, the growth leaders. Like, how do you think about that as some of these break out and some of them don't? Does that change how you think about the future of what you want your portfolio to look like? We look to run 365 as a business. And 365 happens to own this portfolio of brands. And so it's kind of like um, a single P&L conglomerate with these different profit centers. And each profit center represents a brand and a channel. I think through time, we're going to sell off the ones that don't make sense to hold for a team, and we're going to reinvest in the higher quality businesses. So we have businesses today that don't need a shared services model. They don't benefit from some of the leadership team that we have. It's just they're not getting any value out of that. The best move for us would be to put those in the market, take that cash and reinvest into either existing businesses that we have that are growable or into new brands that we want to add to the portfolio. So I think through time, we're just going to sell off some and keep buying up the chain. How do you sell those? Through business brokers, typically. So we're in the main street to lower middle market e-commerce world. There's a handful of well-known established business brokers that can package those up and take them to market the same way you'd retain a commercial real estate broker. And who would be the type of buyer that might buy one of those businesses? Usually it's going to be a first-time buyer that's going to use an SBA loan, kind of where we were six, seven years ago starting out. And they're going to say, hey, I need to make a living. And this business that does $3 million of revenue and 500 of cash flow can pay the bank loan, can replace my salary from corporate America and turn a profit. Great. I want to go get in business. And they're going to buy that. And when they buy it from you, what happens at closing? Are you... You're sending them the, the obviously all the web assets, the yep. internet assets, the IP. 
do you send all the actual product to them and then send them the manufacturing line? Like what, what do they need to take over your business? So if you look at the balance sheet of an e-commerce business, you're really gonna have inventory and then a bunch of goodwill and IP. So the goodwill and the IP is really easy. Here's your passwords. Here's the logins to the website and whatnot. Here's the creative files. We do our own shipping. We have our own warehouse. So for a buyer, we'd let them run out of our warehouse at a fee for service for a short period of time, but we would look for them to take it to their own warehouse or to a third-party logistics provider to ship for them, but we'd transition that. And that takes what, 60 days? Probably. Okay. So literally you're sending them the passwords. They go in and change them. Obviously the legal documents say they own them. You probably transfer the domain name to their GoDaddy account or something. That's about it. It's that simple. For where you have titles and buildings you can go look at, transacting a digital business is the least satisfying, most ethereal thing in the world. Because you're not really writing code. These live on like Shopify sites. Shopify, right? If you have the admin password to Shopify and you have the domain name control, you kind of own the business. Is there anything going on that... You mentioned the big three, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Yep. Then you we just talked about Shopify, which is out there for the small business. Yep. If you were to project out like 10 years, is the industry trying to do a workaround and get out of the big three's control? And do you see that happening or are they actually gaining more dominance? If I had a crystal ball, I would love the answer to that question. Yep. Big companies have a lot of staying power and they have moat in their own business. We looked at TikTok as maybe this way that would be disruptive. And now there's questions from like the regulatory front, like, will it even be in this country later this year? We don't know. I hate to tell you this, but I hope it's not. Uh, and I love you. I love your business. You, I want you to be successful. I don't like TikTok. You, you might be right. Thankfully, <laughs> at least for us, we've not seen it be that high performance of a platform. Frankly, like 90% of e-commerce entrepreneurs are still basically married to either Facebook and or Google and or Amazon. If there is a good guy in the fight, it might be Shopify. They certainly have an ethos of arming the rebels. That's kind of their their tagline. And they might be the last good guy in small business, digital entrepreneurship. Is Facebook getting better for y'all or worse for y'all since the iOS change? It's harder. It's harder, but do you feel a sense that they're championing for you or it's the same old toll that you're just going to pay to do business? Same old toll. And there's probably, is there any... Yeah, if, if you go on Twitter or some industry forums, there is no shortage of stories of an entrepreneur that owns a small business doing a couple million in revenue that has a team of employees that somehow gets their Amazon or Facebook or Google, pick your, pick your player, uh, they get their account banned. And they're stuck in this like customer service nightmare of basically going out of business because some big tech company has really bad customer support. And it's not an uncommon story. It's really kind of weird. God, it just seems to me like there's people, like smart people out there trying to figure out the work around here. There's yeah. a lot at stake. For sure. It's heartbreaking. You see an entrepreneur is like put blood and tears and financial everything on the line to do this. And then there's some automated, you know, chatbot system that's blocking them from being in business. Have you seen any signs? I know it's early, but the AI topic is hot. Is there anything in the chat GPT or the AI world that excites you or frightens you or what's going to help, what's going to hurt? We're leaning into it heavily from a content perspective. We're augmenting our content team heavily with using chat GPT. Our SEO guy was very skeptical and then he wrote a 6,000 word ebook in half a day and (laughs) was very excited. That was helpful. The customer service team is looking at how to augment automating a lot of our responses to be more powerful. 
without the need for man hours. So taking knowledge bases and having them consumed by the AI tool to write better customer support responses. So we're leaning, leaning into it for sure. All right. We've talked about shared services and you kind of talked about 365 as this kind of holding company. Yep. Holding company can be a loose definition depending sure. on who you talk to. And we're going to move the conversation there because this is um, something that I know is really important to you. What type of holding company do you run and how might that be different from maybe another type of holding yep. company? There's this chart that gets thrown in the show notes. You can find it if you Google, but this chart kind of demonstrates the diversity of serial acquirers. And so it's called the buckets of serial acquirers image. If you just Google it, you'll find it. And on one side, you have a very diverse holding company like a Berkshire Hathaway. And the other end, you have like a, a roll up. It's a very, very tight programmatic way of running multiple businesses. And I've studied the chart a lot and I've realized that we have elements that are on both ends of the spectrum. So uh, having emergency food and cloth diapers looks very diverse and very non-correlated. But if you look at the way we operate them, it looks and functions operationally like a roll up. We have one team that uses one platform operationally, software, humans, office space, et cetera, to run those multiple businesses. So we've really evolved into being really a roll up of e-commerce businesses that just has a very diverse set of products and different brands that that roll up owns. How does the market view you? If you were to go to say- Transact the whole business? Yeah. So there was, a, six years ago, we bought the first one. And I was like, oh, we should do this like hold co of e-commerce businesses. Our mutual friend Bill and some others had done something like that. I'm like, this, this is a good career path. The notion of like the Amazon aggregator and Thrasio and all these like news articles about raising billions of dollars to roll up e-commerce, frankly, happened after entrepreneurs like Bill or myself or others were, were doing this. And so that notion of taking venture capital, buying a bunch of assets at some multiple, and then going public 10 years later at a much higher multiple, I'm not sure that's going to work. It, it's not happened yet. It'd be great if it did. It would set a transaction mark that businesses could go chase and provide a pathway to say, hey, here's a comp. We think we're, we're worth what that comp is. Right now, that's not clear to me whether or not our business would see a premium or a discount if we tried to transact the whole business. You're not the first person on the podcast. Almost every time I've, we've talked about e-commerce, and there's been several guests, I think Patrick and Bill and- yep. Everybody has the same feeling that like these big aggregators, it's not going to work out. I mean, I hope it does for all of us, right? If somebody can prove that the market's willing to pay that price premium, then those of us that have multiple assets have a goal to chase. Until that time, it's probably some of the parts. Well, what, okay, but it, it seems to be a common insight amongst people from all over the country and all different types of businesses. Why might you have the feeling that it might not work out the way they think it will? Or that raising VC money to do it, or is it, yeah. is, it the, is it the way they've structured doing it? Is it just the model might not work? If you look at the, the VC funded ones, they're all predicated on massive multiple arbitrage. They're going to buy businesses at three or four times earnings. And then the public company IPO will one day be worth 20 times earnings. And it's that difference from four times to 20 times that creates all this value. And you or I can put it in a spreadsheet model and it'll go up and to the right because all the charts go up and to the right. And it'll look really good on paper. But somebody has to be that terminal buyer, a private equity firm, the public markets, a SPAC. Somebody has to say, I'm going to buy this thing at this valuation one day. It just hasn't happened yet. So that really is the value add is just multiple expansion. There, there's not operational improvement or we have a better marketing engine or. Theoretically, if you had a tight group of brands, we're doing everything in baby. We're doing everything in pet. We're doing everything in sports and outdoors. 
that can work. So like the private equity firm that took public solo stove had some ancillary brands around it, I think a kayak brand and maybe some others. You certainly can get a story about an end market. So like we're serving millennials or we're serving moms who care about the environment. You could build some like end customer theses. The only other strategy there might be a technology play. Hey, we have this best in class software that does X or Y or Z. My opinion as an operator, most of the times I see those newfangled, like we're going to reinvent e-commerce software packages. I roll my eyes at most of them. I don't think many of them are terribly effective. Humans are pretty simple. You show them the right thing at the right time, and they're going to buy it. There's only so much value that can be added into the marketing tech stack. Once you're sending emails and running some ads, there's not a whole lot more magic that's going to happen. So I'm skeptical of a lot of the technology value add. Is Thrasio bought, is Thrasio different? I've not done any research on Thrasio. So sure. they're a big name. Are they different than like an Amazon roll-up? They, they are the original preeminent main referenced Amazon roll-up. So they were buying companies that only sold product through Amazon. Correct. Which is a very homogenous looking thing because, hey, we have a common sales channel. However, the supply chain is incredibly different if you're buying products from them because they might have dozens of factories scattered across China from dozens of brands that are all on different manufacturing cycles. It is a common end market of the Amazon shopper. It's a very diverse supply chain. Why have y'all chosen to have manufacturing be domestic besides the fact it's the right thing to do and we love America? It is a good moat in the business. So probably the best example is we have a business that makes fermentation supplies. Okay. If you want to make some sourdough bread or kombucha or yogurt at home, like we got everything you need. To do that, we run a commercial kitchen that has food inspections that has to grow those products, harvest those products, dehydrate them, package them, packet them, kit them into end SKUs. And the end SKU is only 40, 50 bucks retail. Uh, but we have this huge value chain to assemble that. And so you would have to go rebuild that entire value chain to compete with us. Does anybody compete with you that does it overseas? I don't think you could do that feasibly, no. Okay, so part of it is you're in categories yep. that you almost have to do it domestically or else it can't really work. Correct. But are you in anything where we have you have competitors business. doing it overseas? Yes, we have one business that has custom products made overseas and we have a direct competitor that also makes their products overseas. It would not be terribly cost effective to bring that one stateside. Do you have an opinion on... I know you don't do it, but companies that are outsourcing, like I hear things like China's not as cheap as it used to be. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's starting to become almost as expensive as America. They copy your IP. They rip you off. Like In most categories, the supply chain is relatively established. So if you now decided, like, we're going to go make the Chris and Kelsey Gene Company. Okay. There's only so many factories that make genes. They're probably all in the same couple of places in Asia. Uh, we might find one or two domestic manufacturers. And really quickly, we'd have a spreadsheet of Here's the people we could, we could go buy from. Here's all the input costs and the specifications of the materials they're going to use and their lead times. And you'd have a very good view of the supply chain to make jeans. What you'd probably not do is decide to go buy a fabric mill and sewing machines and start making jeans from scratch. Because what would be your competitive advantage to doing that? It'd be very hard to do. So in most markets, I use just jeans as a random example, there is a relatively established supply chain for most consumer goods, whether it's apparel, cosmetics, food, they're just established places to buy those products from. And if you're an entrepreneur innovating in a category, you can add some value, but likely the supply chain is already established. Interesting. Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway was started on a fabric mill. Textiles. Textiles. Yep. It's kind of similar. It didn't, didn't work. 
It worked out. It did. It worked out. But not because of the textiles. Are you guys self-funded? Do you have investors? How are you guys structured? Yeah, we are self-funded. Justin and I are the only equity holders in the business. Okay. We've maxed out SBA loans a couple times, which is kind of fun. And we've done every version of high interest rate borrowing that an entrepreneur can do to lever up an e-commerce business. We're about to turn the corner on having a lot of that paid off and a clean balance sheet and ready to figure out what's next from here. And why have y'all chosen to self-fund and bootstrap and not take on investor equity? I'd be a really terrible employee. You would? Yeah, I would be. You're afraid that, not afraid, but that the type of investor you might bring in, it's more of a, I work for you type of relationship. No, that's a, that's a good joke. And Justin and I do like to joke about being unemployable. It's been yeah. a common thing for the two of us. But candidly, I, I don't know that adding outside capital would be a good accelerant to the business model. I, I don't have a thesis for why I would want to do that. So is that possible? Are there people who want to invest in e-commerce? Like, definitely. I don't have an opportunity set identified that would make that a really good decision for us to pursue. Okay. If I did, I'd, I'd call you. Okay. Before we came in earlier, we were chatting and we were just talking about live events and how the internet has really created this really cool opportunity for like-minded people to get together more often. And they don't have to be these really expensive conferences that you know, are, are super expensive and you don't really know who's showing up. You can kind of get these more niche communities. While you've been an attendee of many, you launched one. Yep. So let's kind of, let's just spend some time on like how an event happens, what goes into it, the value you see from it, and maybe your thoughts on it in the future. Yeah. So the backstory there is Hold CoConf, which is an event I co-founded last year with my friend, John Wilson is an annual event for holding companies. And so what John and I realized is we're both in Northeast Ohio. We had similar headcount, similar number of businesses, similar revenues, shed a lot in common. And we were we hit it off and became friends. And there really was no place where he and I would have met if it wasn't for Twitter. It's kind of a happenstance that we met online, but there was no industry event for holding company owners. If you had two or more businesses, there was no obvious place to go. If you were in e-commerce, sure there's e-commerce events and you, Chris, can go to real estate events, but there wasn't a place for hold goes. And so uh, we started that live event last year, uh, hosting it again this year. And it's just been a ton of fun because you get these very widely diversified, varied entrepreneurs in all kinds of categories. People last year own everything from restaurants to HVAC and plumbing companies to e-commerce businesses to software. But the one thing they all had in common was they all had two or more businesses and they all had the same problems of scaling a portfolio of companies. What are some of those problems? HR, finance, shared services, decision-making around scaling the team, hiring leadership team, hiring operators for portfolio companies, raising capital, the same challenges by people that were early in that, that had two or three businesses, were presented by people that had seven or eight businesses and tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. You're about to throw uh, the second annual. Yep. What did you learn after year one at the, that will, maybe we could, Think about just throwing an event in general. Yeah, it's exhausting. So a lot goes into it, huh? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. My wife came to the closing night dinner and she's like, oh, hey, how are you? And she said <laughs> that I'd like, like, expect me to light up because we just had a very successful event. And I just kind of stared at her blankly and I'm like, I'd like to go to bed now. <laughs> it was like eight o'clock. I was just zonked. It, it, it takes a lot out of you. It's very, it's a lot of hard work. Were you, it's because you're working the event rather than Yeah, it's like an adrenaline dump. Every, like every five minutes, you're trying to make sure that there's a really great experience for all these people. I felt like John's really laid back, but I felt this immense pressure of like, 
which had 100 plus people flying from not even around the country, but around the world. We had international attendees that decided to come to Cleveland for a couple thousand dollars to this brand new conference from two guys that met on the internet. I better really deliver. Like, I'm, I want to make sure that I'm really proud of this experience. And I felt an immense amount of pressure to make sure it was a fantastic event. I'm glad to say I think we did a good job. We got a lot of kind words and I think we delivered on it. But man, did I feel a lot of pressure. Is it the same size this year? We're shooting to be a little bit bigger. Okay. I think there's a lot of interest in the SMB Holdco roll-up thing. It's a pretty popular topic these days. And so, yeah, we're shooting for a little bit bigger this year. Why do you think it's become such a, a popular topic? It's a whole generation of us that are all probably of the similar age in life, call it early 30s to 40-something. And we all read Richard Dad, Poor Dad. We all know who Tim Ferriss is and read the 4-Hour Workweek. And there's certain maybe like entrepreneurial themes in culture that we've all seen the same thing. We, we see Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. We know their stories. And as a generation of entrepreneurs decides to look at buying small businesses as opposed to working in corporate America or working on Wall Street or doing the startup thing in Silicon Valley, I think there's just this triangulation of personalities that has similar interests. And uh, I guarantee you that me and any other quote unquote Holdco guy could spend three hours over drinks just trading similar stories that common bond of running multiple businesses is just an instant conversation piece. Do you think a lot of this style comes from what happened at Berkshire? Like as you've, as you've met a lot of these people, is that the inspiration for a lot of people to start it or is it? I think the big names a lot of people would point to are probably uh, some mutual friends like Brent at Permanent Equity or the guys at Chenmark. There's certainly people that have been talking about this publicly for a while. And those are the biggest audience probably get mentioned pretty frequently. I think if you really point back though, yeah, honestly, it's the, the Charlie and Warren Berkshire compounding patient capital kind of stuff that probably gets repeated the most as being influential. Influential. I'm not going to say something that you've probably never heard before, but when I think about buying small businesses yep. and then sitting around and eating peanut brittle and, <laughs> and playing gin, or I think about buying the greatest businesses in the world that are billions of dollars with CEOs that have, you know, he really... Do you think there's an allure to be like that? But it's, I, I, I don't want to say it's impossible. Maybe like one day you get there, but it's much different buying, you know, some of these companies that he's bought for tens of billions than it is to buy a $2 million company. And, you know, you can't really sit on your ass and do nothing. I, I would agree. I don't think that what I do for a living resembles anything like what happens <laughs> in Omaha uh, as much as that, that's inspirational. I get bored easily. I like a new challenge and kind of the thrill of doing deals is certainly part of what fuels our organization. Yeah. And yeah, do, do, is it easy to say I want to be Warren Buffett when I grow up? Maybe, but he has a very different life than I do. Okay. Thrill of doing deals. Here's my question. Yep. You have a thrill of doing deals. Yep. You said it brings momentum to 365. Yep. When you are buying a deal, how is the team made aware that a new company is coming in, a new product's coming in, or like, how does that work? That works as I do the majority of the sourcing and diligence work on the front end until okay. it's time for us to actually get under offer. At that point, I'll bring in Justin and we'll get aligned on all the specifics of the transaction. And as we get to be under LOI, we're going to engage stakeholders in the team, usually the VP level. So supply chain, ops, finance, HR, marketing. 
and they're all going to have their opportunity to ask questions, be involved in the diligence process, and generally jump into things. We'll announce it to the team shortly thereafter is probably going to happen. And then on data close, the team's told, hey, it's done. Okay. How do you source? Most of what we have bought historically has been on market. So all the same brokers that I bought businesses from over the years are the ones who I talk with on a regular basis about what they're selling. We're starting to get a little bit of inbound deal flow. Some of it is attractive. Some of it, frankly, isn't a good fit for us, but I'm happy to have it. People reach out pretty frequently. And then as of late, we've been doing a number of distressed transactions. So we have a relationship with a lender that's backed a variety of e-commerce businesses. And when they are in need of a workout, we get a phone call to play cleanup crew, which is a great opportunity for us economically to be able to turn around a business and partner with a lender in the next phase for that company. Okay. What would a turnaround look like? What would a mess, what would a broken <laughs> business look yeah. like coming in and what are y'all doing to get it back to yep. right size? The common thing we see is a lot of these had been venture funded businesses. And so usually the balance sheet is pretty distressed when we're brought in. That's often cleaned up through the lender transaction, but the real problems on the PL side, what we just see is that when money was free and there was always another round to be raised and, and checks were flowing, there was just no discipline around expenses where we would normally benchmark comp for a role or a cat expense category as a percentage of revenue or whatever that, that KPI might be. Things are just wildly off. And that's where we start to actually see the synergies of our model. So we know that our shipping rates with DHL or FedEx are a lot lower than theirs. We know that they had X number of accounting people and uh, our accounting team has some bandwidth to absorb things. We know that our marketing team has bandwidth. So we actually see good synergy in those transactions. Okay. I want to go back to the Holdco conference. Yeah. So you threw year one. Yep. What are the biggest changes you're making, if any, to year two? Like, what did you learn more on the agenda of the event? Did people like more speakers? Did they not? Like, how is how will this year be better? We're not changing a whole lot. Probably the only material change is some breakout sessions, getting people with common problems together to do problem solving in groups in an open setting, probably the biggest change. So we have a handful of speakers and we have a handful of kind of activities that are fun. If you go to a conference and you say, oh man, like there's all these speakers and people on stage, but like the best conversations were in the hallway. I don't want somebody to say that about HoldCoConf. I want the hallway to be like half of the conference. And so yeah. One of the days last year was like, choose your own adventure activities. And some people went to a cocktails class. Some people went rock climbing. Some people went in bowling. Just activities to spend other time with attendees that is incredibly unstructured with food and drink available to kind of relax and just spend a couple hours together building relationships. So we're going to do a lot of that this year. Any cool stories of things that happened amongst attendees after going year one? Ooh, that's a great question. Indirectly, I know of people that ended up doing deals that were both in attendance. I don't know if that was a direct result of the conference yeah. or something else. And is this something that you foresee becoming a business in and of itself, throwing this and making it a thing that you do every year? And Yeah, I'd definitely like to. If there's enough interest from the market for us to keep growing it, we certainly will. Well, I am very interested in doing something like this in the real estate world. Yep, It's fun. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. and It's exhausting, but it's fun. What's so exhausting about it? I had nonstop like adrenaline dumps of like... Like during the conference. Was it exhausting building it? Not really. No, we had uh, good event planning help. We have event planning help again this year. Like I had a good vision for what we wanted. It was literally just the the operation and production of the conference. Like I'm totally fine standing in front of 100 people on the stage and talking about something. I, that's not a problem for me. The 
yet somehow I was like pouring buckets of sweat and had nausea for no reason at all, other than I just felt the need to make sure the conference went well. I wasn't nervous about speaking. I was nervous about everybody having a really great time and being able to do it again next year. You think you'll have that same experience this year or you've streamlined we'll it see. more? Are you going to bring the adrenaline again? We'll see. Is it in Cleveland again? It is. How'd y'all pick Cleveland? It's our backyard. Uh, it's a cost advantage to doing events locally. No matter what part of the country you're in, having the ability to be uh, down the street is an advantage. Cool. Do you think about the conference at all? Is it something that where you are videoing or creating additional content for it or there's other ways to learn or have you thought that far into it? We recorded all the sessions last year and we released most of them online free podcast and video. We'll probably do that again this year. We also started a survey for holding companies. So I look at various industries and there's like an industry publication that tends to do an annual report. And so we decided to kick that off this year with the first Holdco survey. And so that piece of collateral of insights about holding companies and their various revenue sizes and how they're financed and kind of all the, the typical questions is something we're really excited to put out this year, leading up to this year's conference. We'll again record all the sessions this year and probably continue to release those. We did a boot camp for aspiring hold codes this year, which was a lot of fun. Probably continue to do one or two of those a year. But uh, I think the real vision for Holdco Conference is to be the the annual gathering of like-minded multi-business entrepreneurs that is the can't miss event. I love it. I think there's an opportunity in many verticals for to sure. do something like this. We had a conversation last year after the conference with a guy who was like, I feel like I could go to niche communities on the internet and I can go find one in real estate and one in SaaS and one in hold codes. And we made a list of them. And I could just build a business doing a, a conference a month and just hosting niche community live events. And I'm like, that's probably like a multi-million dollar business. A hundred percent. It's a multi-million dollar business. You mentioned the, the the T word Twitter. Yep. That's how we met. It is. I tend to ask folks on the podcast how Twitter's impacted them in hopes that one, it brings new people to the community that might not be on it. But what how's Twitter had an impact on, on you and how do you think about it? Uh, for a long time, I really valued learning from people that I respected and getting insights into business. I think that some of the smartest, most insightful things I've learned have been people willingly sharing on Twitter, which is kind of kind of wild. Met some great friends, yourself and others, and built some relationships. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. The community is is super, super cool. I have gone through phases of how much I want to put out there in the world and have some you know, identity crisis around, you know, what, what kind of content do I want to make? But I'm a big, big fan of the platform and I hope that it stays a really, really great way to meet people. I think the same. I think you said it perfectly. I, I enjoy the people that I've met is the most valuable. For sure. The business it's generated is incredible. I struggle a lot with there's just weeks, months that I'm like, yeah. ah, I got nothing to say. Yep. So anyway. All right, buddy. Thanks for coming down to town. And uh, I look forward to the few more events that we get to hang out together this year. Appreciate it. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. <laughs>